0: Uh, Well, friends, the story goes that the great boxer Muhammad Ali was on a plane when it began to experience severe turbulence. Over the speakers came the announcement from the captain that everyone was to put on their seatbelts. However, when the flight attendant went over to Ali, she noticed that he didn't have his seatbelt on. When she encouraged him to put it on, this is what he said. He said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which she replied, Superman don't need no plane either. (laughs) Ali had finally met his match. Now, uh, in that instance, Ali was put in his place, wasn't he? And yet, it's true that Muhammad Ali represents how our world thinks about greatness, isn't it? Greatness is about power. In our world, greatness is about ability. Greatness is about human impressiveness, which can be ranked against others. That's why Ali was able to say things like, I am the greatest. In fact, on one occasion he said, I'm not the greatest, I'm the double greatest. Not only do I knock them out, I pick the round. Uh, now friends, uh, we might not be as crass as Muhammad Ali in the things we say, uh, we might not even be as ambitious as him, as, as wanting to be the best in any field, and yet it is true, isn't it, that we too can often have this desire to rank ourselves above others. Now, is that true? We see it, I think, in the pangs of jealousy we might feel when other colleagues get promotions ahead of us. We do it when we take mental notes of what other people um, are wearing, or what other people are driving, or what other people are owning. Ministers might do it by comparing the size of their congregations. How do you rank yourself against others? Do you have this desire, if you're honest to be greater than other people in this world. Uh, Well, this morning we're coming back to Matthew's Gospel again. And uh, if you've been with us for a while, you'll know that we've been working our way through uh, Matthew's Gospel over the past few years. Uh, You might also remember that Matthew's Gospel is organised around some big teaching blocks where Jesus, the master teacher, teaches his disciples and the crowds uh, we've seen him, for example, teaching uh, in the, the great Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7. We've seen him teaching about mission in chapter 10. We've seen him teaching in parables in chapter 13. And today, we begin a new teaching block in chapter 18, which begins with the question that you see there on the lips of Jesus' disciples in verse 1. I Have a look with me at verse 1. They ask... Jesus this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, why do they ask Jesus this question, I wonder? Well, it could be because Jesus has been using the language of ranking in the past. Uh, he's, he's talked about being least in the kingdom of heaven uh, or being great in the kingdom of heaven, back in chapter 5, verse 19? Or is it because Jesus has recently privileged three of his disciples, who, if you remember, he takes up a mountain and reveals himself in all his glory at the transfiguration? Or is it because he's just been speaking about the st- uh, about status, and in particular, his status as being uh, the son of uh, the, the son of God, and so is free from having to pay the temple tax, if you remember back to uh, our last talk on Matthew. Uh, we're not really told here, are we? And yet what we can see is that chapter 18 speaks a lot about relationships. It recognises that there will be other people in the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus begins to teach his disciples about Uh, how they are to relate to one another. This is about life in the kingdom that is ruled by Jesus. And so how does Jesus answer the question that is on the lips of his disciples? What, What does he have to say about this desire to know who is the greatest in the kingdom? Well, you can see there that Jesus calls to him a child to illustrate that if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven... You need to become like this little child. Uh, You can see it there in verse 2. Have a look with me at verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But what does it mean to become like children? Well, a lot of ink has been spilt in trying to answer that question. Uh, Some people say that it's about becoming innocent like children. Uh, Or others say it's about becoming pure like children. Well, if that's what you think children are like, then uh, I invite you to come and spend a week in the Shin household, and I guarantee you that you will change your mind. People who think that children are innocent and pure either have no experience of children or are simply delusional. Still others say that what Jesus is talking about here is having a simple faith, like a child, by which they mean a faith that lacks mature understanding. But this can't be the case either, can it? Because other parts of Scripture actually speak against being like a child, in your immaturity. And we are encouraged to actually grow up, not stay as a child forever, in the faith. So what does it mean to become like children? Well, it's not talking about taking on any perceived ethical qualities of children. Rather, it's to adopt the status of children. Uh, You know, this might be a little bit difficult for us to understand because, uh, by and large, we live in uh, a culture where um, many of us are in danger of idolising our children. And yet, in Jesus' day, children were the ones who had absolutely no status in life, they were nobodies, they were utterly dependent on others for their existence. And so when Jesus says that you must become like children, uh, what he's saying is that you must adopt the status of a child. You must come to God as though you have absolutely no status before him. You have nothing to offer God except perhaps your sin and your rebellion against him. And you are utterly dependent on him for mercy and forgiveness. Uh, That's why Jesus says in verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying that children are always humble, because that's uh, quite obviously not the case. But he's saying that to become like children, you have to adopt their status. You have to adopt a low status and recognize your need and dependence of God. Uh, Notice, friends, what is at stake here. Jesus is not simply giving advice about how to live a good life. No, he's talking about entering the kingdom of heaven, you see. The disciples here are simply concerned about their own rank and place and status in the kingdom of heaven. But what Jesus is saying is that with that attitude, you'd actually, you actually better make sure that you are in the kingdom in the first place. For the one who is able to enter the kingdom of heaven is the one who has humbled himself to the position of a child. You get into the kingdom by going low, you see. Uh, You may have been to the the Louvre Museum uh, in Paris. Has anyone been to the Louvre before? The lucky ones? Yep, a few of us. Uh, Going to the Louvre for the art lover is a bit like going to heaven itself, I think. Uh, You have almost... uh, 400,000 of the world's best pieces of art uh, in a single place. Uh, in fact, I, I heard the other day that if you want to spend time looking at each piece, it will, it will take you almost five months uh, to go through the whole museum. But here's the thing. Um, if you've ever been to the museum, you will know that in order to get into the museum, uh, you need to actually go down uh, a flight of stairs because the entrance is actually uh, down the bottom above that famous pyramid uh, that lies on, uh, on, on uh, street level. And so the way to get in is by going low. That's kind of what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? You get into the kingdom by going low. You get into the kingdom by coming to Jesus, knowing your humble circumstance before him. You get in by coming to him, recognizing your great need for forgiveness and mercy because all you have to offer him is your sin and rebellion and my sin and rebellion. And you get in by trusting that he is the only one who can forgive you and give you eternal life in his kingdom. Notice you don't get into the kingdom thinking that you can achieve it through your own greatness. You don't get into the kingdom by declaring to God that you must be great because of your church going or because you were born into a Christian family or because you were baptised or because of your good works or decent life. No, the only way that you will find yourself in the kingdom of heaven is by humbly coming to Jesus. So I want to ask you this morning, have you humbly come to him in this way? Are you in the kingdom, is the question that Jesus is asking. And so you get in by going low. Uh, those who are truly great in God's eyes are the ones who have humbled Himself, uh, humbled themselves rather before Jesus. However, in the next few verses, you'll notice that Jesus changes topics from how you get into the kingdom to how you treat others. In the kingdom. And uh, I want you to see here that the point that Jesus makes is that true greatness in the kingdom of heaven is about guarding others from stumbling. It's about guarding others from stumbling. You can see it there in verse 5. Have a look with me at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You see, here Jesus begins to speak about receiving other children because they belong to Jesus. In other words, Jesus is now teaching about how we treat other disciples who belong to the kingdom of heaven. And how are we to treat other disciples? Well, we are to be so concerned for them that we do not cause them to stumble in their faith. Uh, The word sin that you see there in verse 6 is literally the word to stumble. And so what Jesus is speaking about here is about influencing other disciples of Jesus in such a way that they stumble and fall and perhaps even lose their faith in Jesus as they walk away from him. Uh, Notice how serious this is, friends. Uh, Jesus says that if you influence another disciple in such a way that they stumble and fall and walk away from Jesus, then it will be better for you and me to have a big bag of cement tied around our necks and be drowned in Sydney Harbour. We might often think that our sin and our potential to influence others negatively uh, is no big deal. But Jesus is deadly serious about how you and I treat others and influence others, especially other disciples, you see. How then do we guard other disciples from stumbling in their lives? How do we care for others so that they may not be tempted by our behaviour to sin and reject Jesus in their lives? Well, it's by guarding ourselves, friends, so that we ourselves do not fall into temptation and stumble and fall in our own lives. Uh, let's pick it up from verse 7. Have a look at verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one Uh, I read an interesting article the other day that suggested that many people, uh, up to a third of the population, um, to be exact, keep some sort of weapon under their bed. Uh, Some people have baseball bats, other people have cricket bats, uh, still other people have golf clubs. Hands up if you keep a weapon underneath your bed. Not many of us, it's interesting. Well... Why do, why do people keep weapons under their bed, do you think? Uh, it's because they want to guard others in their family, isn't it? Uh, if, a, if an intruder comes in. And what is the best way to guard other people when intruders come in? Well, it's by guarding yourself and having a, a bat or a golf club at your disposal. You see, the best way to guard others is to guard yourself. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You guard others by guarding yourself. You help others not to stumble by not stumbling yourself. The world will be temptation enough for disciples to sin and stumble and fall. And so how much worse will it be if you are someone who belongs to Jesus and by your living and my living we cause another disciple to stumble and fall in their, in their life? Notice that for this reason, Jesus wants you and me to take drastic action if we find ourselves caught up in sin, whatever that sin might be. Uh, I don't think Jesus is speaking literally here when he says to cut off your hands and gouge out your eyes if they cause you to sin. Uh, How do I know this? Well, remember what Jesus said in chapter 15 about sin, Uh, He said that the problem of sinfulness is actually located in the human heart, didn't he? And so even if you cut off your hands and your feet and gouge out your eyes, you've still got your sinful heart to deal with. You haven't really solved the problem. Now what Jesus is doing here is he's speaking in hyperbole. In other words, he's using extreme language to urge us to take extreme action if we are caught up in sin, because our sin not only puts us in danger before God, but it puts others in danger as well. And so, if you are in the habit of watching pornography, for example, then cut your internet connection or move your computer to a public space in the home. It's better to go to heaven without the internet than to ruin the lives of others and go to hell with the fastest NBN connection available. Or, if you are a greedy person, then why not drastically increase your generosity towards the gospel and the needs of others? It's better to go to heaven with a little in your bank account, rather than to be the richest person in hell. Or if you are a spiritually apathetic person, perhaps a spiritually apathetic husband, putting your family in great spiritual danger, then humble yourself and seek help from someone. It's better to go to heaven without your dignity than to be proud and go to hell having led your family away from Jesus. Now friends, if you think um, I'm being too radical here, then just have a look at Jesus' words again. Jesus believes in hell, which he describes as eternal punishment from God. Please don't believe those who say that Jesus doesn't believe in hell because he's simply just about love. No, Jesus speaks about hell more than anyone in the New Testament. And it is because he loves us that he warns us to take drastic action if we are caught up in sin. Because by guarding ourselves, we guard not only ourselves, but we guard others around us. And so, uh, we've seen that those who enter the kingdom of heaven are those who become like children We've also seen the importance of guarding other disciples uh, from stumbling by guarding ourselves. But why should we guard other disciples? Well, in the final part of our passage this morning, we get a wonderful glimpse into the heart of God himself. And what Jesus says is that we guard others because each and every disciple Is very, very precious to the God who loves us. Let's pick it up from verse 10. Verse 10 See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than uh, over the ninety-nine that never went astray. And so, it will, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Notice that the command is to not despise the little ones who are disciples of Jesus. In other words, we are not to look down on other disciples. We are not to neglect other disciples. We are not to cause them to fall in their life. Rather, we are to care for them and guard them in the faith. But why? Why should we do this? Well, we're given two reasons there. Uh, Firstly, Jesus says in verse 10 that it's because their angels... Always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Which is a a weird thing to say, isn't it? Uh, Many Christian people think this is speaking about guardian angels. Uh, Why should we care for other disciples? Well, they say it's because uh, each and every one of us has a guardian angel uh, who is looking after us, which suggests that we must be important to God. But friends, I don't think that's what Jesus is speaking about here. Now, nowhere in the Bible, as far as I'm aware, are we ever told that every single one of us has a guardian angel, an individual guardian angel looking after us. Now, I think the angels that Jesus speaks about here are the spirits of the disciples who go to heaven. The spirits of the disciples who go to heaven after their death. Later on in uh, chapter 22, verse 30, uh, Jesus uses the word angel to describe disciples in heaven when he says, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. And so what Jesus is saying is that disciples are precious because of their glorious future. Every single disciple every single disciple of jesus will spend eternity gazing at the face of jesus uh, gazing at the face of jesus and dwelling with god forever in heaven which means that they matter to god and so they must matter to us as well but secondly jesus gives this wonderful window into the heart of god the father as he describes him as a great shepherd who leaves the ninety-nine sheep to go after the one sheep that is going astray. Uh, if you've been a careful reader, however, you may have noticed something strange here in the passage. Uh, what's something strange uh, in the passage? Has anyone picked that up? Yeah, there's no verse eleven. <laughs> Where is verse eleven gone? Uh, I think what's happened there is, um, in some biblical manuscripts, which are copies of the original um, gospel, it seems that some scribes have put in the words, for the Son of Man came to seek and, sa- uh, to seek the- and save the lost, or something to that effect. I think you can see it in, your, in, in a little footnote in your Bible. But uh, it's likely, I think, um, for those word, that those words uh, are an insertion into the text rather than something that Matthew originally wrote in his Gospel, uh, which is why it's missing in, in most translations. But I think the point still is very clear from this passage. Uh, each individual sheep is so precious to God that he is willing to leave 99 sheep who are not straying In the field to go searching for that one sheep who has gone astray. In fact, that one sheep is so precious to God that when he finds it, notice that he rejoices greatly. And so every single disciple of Jesus is precious to God. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you are very precious to God. God knows you and he loves you. And he counts you as precious, even if you are immature or weak or wandering, which we are all prone to do. And God's great desire is to seek you out and not let you perish by wandering away from him. In fact, he loved you and he loved me so much that he sent his very own son to die in our place for our sins. So that he might Forgive us of our sin and pride, and so that he might bring back those who are wandering. What a wonderful God we have, who is willing to seek and save the little ones. And if God counts each disciple as this precious, then so should each of us, if we belong to him. Now, at this week in our staff meeting... Uh, all the pastors at our church read this passage together, and uh, there was a moment of uh, quiet silence as uh, we all realised that there have been times when, in our busyness, uh, we've left the ninety. Uh, sorry, we, we've cared for the ninety-nine and neglected the one who is straying and wandering. And so uh, I, I need to repent of thinking this way as I think about caring for uh, this particular congregation. And yet, when I looked carefully at this passage, I saw something really helpful. Because this command to not despise the little ones is not just a command to pastors, is it? But it's actually a command to all Jesus' disciples. You know, in in, in English, the word you can either be singular, or it can be plural, and there's no way of distinguishing between them just by looking at the word, isn't it? And so if I say, uh, you're beautiful, I could be speaking about you, or I could be speaking about my wife. There's no way of knowing who exactly I'm speaking to just by the word you. But in the Greek language, which is the original language of the New Testament, you can tell whether it's a singular or whether it's a plural. And so the you that you see there in verse 8 is a singular. It's talking about each individual's responsibility to drastically guard against sin in order to guard others. However, the you that you see there in verse 10 is a plural you, in other words, the responsibility to care for other disciples who belong to Jesus is not just for one person. If you are a disciple of Jesus, then Jesus is speaking to you. How are you going in guarding other disciples so that they do not stumble and fall and walk away from Jesus? How wonderful, friends, when disciples care for the spiritual welfare of others. How wonderful when we hear things like, you know, I've noticed so-and-so hasn't been around for the last little while. Uh, I might give them a call and and see how they're going, just to encourage them. Or, I know that so-and-so is making some very unwise decisions in his life. I wonder whether I should give them a call and speak to them about that, so that they can make some changes for their good. Or, wow, we've seen lots of new people at church lately. I wonder whether I should go and get to know some of them and see where they are spiritually in their lives and in their relationship with Jesus. But that is what it looks like to be great in the kingdom of heaven. How tragic when disciples of Jesus can only think about themselves and know very little about the lives of others and care very little about how they might be going. Those who are so precious to God, do not despise these little ones, says Jesus. Guard them, care for them, for they are precious to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed the great shepherd who cares for your sheep. Thank you that in your love you have found us who were once lost by sending your son to give his life for us. Thank you that you care for each one of us individually and that even if we wonder, that it is your desire to seek us out as we are straying. Father, we ask that you would help us to be the people who care for those who are precious to you in ways that reflect your care for us. Help us to be the ones who humble ourselves, not only before you, but before others, so that we might count the needs of others above ourselves. We thank you that in the Lord Jesus we have such a great example of one who did not count equality with you something to be grasped, but someone who made himself nothing and obediently gave himself over to death, even death on a cross. Father, if we have been living in sin, we pray that you would mercifully grant us repentance. Help us to see the seriousness of sin in your eyes. Help us to not trivialize it and help us to turn away from living in such ways not only for our own sake, but for the sake of others around us. Help us to be the ones who do not seek our own greatness, but find joy in following and listening to the one who really is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, the Lord Jesus. For we pray this in his name. Amen.